If you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 10. Luke in chapter 10 is where we will be on this morning. Uh, we will read where we left off last week, verse 25, through the end of the chapter to verse 42. We'll actually spend two weeks in this text, and so this will be the same text that we read next week, and I'll explain all that as we go. So Luke 10, uh, starting in verse 25, and reading down to verse 42, if you got it, say, I got it. It'll also be behind me on the screen to my translation for you to follow along there as well. Let's read this together. The Holy Spirit says, and behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "'Take care of him.'" And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three, do you think, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Amen. This is God's word. May God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. If you know C.S. Lewis, you probably know him as the author of The Chronicles of Narnia, or perhaps uh, from Mere Christianity, if you're into uh, more apologetic works, or maybe even the Screwtape Letters, you might be familiar with that book. You may not be as familiar with, uh, of his, is another work of fiction titled The Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is what it's called. Now, this title could be a little misleading, uh, it's not a book about marriage, right? It's not about divorce either. It's, it's an allegory, a theological fantasy or a dream vision in which the narrator journeys on a bus from the outskirts of hell, which are called Greytown, to the outskirts of heaven, which is called the Green Plains, Okay. Through this journey, the narrator, of course, meets many characters who have died, and he observes how the people from Greytown come into contact with people they knew when they were alive who now reside in the Green Plains. 
The difference between the people from Greytown and people from Green Plains is stark. The people from Greytown are like these ghostly shadows. They're not solid. They're not whole. They're afraid of the light. And while the people in Green Meadow, they're solid and they're whole. And they love the light. Only by being in the Green Meadow can one be whole because in the shadows of Greytown means one is less than complete for they are missing the one thing that can make them whole. Love for God for his own sake. In one encounter that the narrator observes, a woman from Greytown named Pam is conversing with her brother who lives in the Green Plains. And his name is Reginald. Well, Pam is disappointed that Reginald is her guide from the Green Plains because she was hoping it would be her son, Michael, who died as a child. And all Pam wants is to see Michael. And she tells Reginald, she'll do whatever it takes to see him. Whatever I have to do to see Michael, I'll do it. She says, what do you want me to do? She said, come on, the sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me see my boy, I'm quite ready. See, Pam doesn't want to get to the Green Plains or heaven in order to get God. Do you see? She only wants to get Michael, her son. She doesn't want to love God for God. She wants to love God to get to the one she loves most, which is her son. This is why Reginald, he responds to her. He says, don't you see you're not beginning at all? as long as you are in that state of mind. He says, you're treating God only as a means to Michael, but the whole thickening treatment consists in learning to want God for his own sake. What Reginald is trying to teach Pam is that in order to become whole, in order to become solid or thickened, and thus live as she ought, she must love God for God. And he must be her greatest love, or else she can't even love Michael rightly. God must occupy first place in her loves, not second, not even tied for first with something or someone else. He must be first and he must be loved for his own sake, not in a way to get some other prize. This is what he's trying to teach. As Reginald says a little later, you exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. That relation is older and closer. He also loves, he also has suffered, he also has waited a long time. What Lewis was trying to convey in this scene and in the great divorce overall was not that he believed in some sort of second chance after death or some kind of purgatory. What he was trying to get across was that to be truly whole, to be really solid in this life and the next, a choice must be made in this one. Says Joe Rigney, in everything Lewis writes, his aim is to remind us that we are here and now, that God is here and now, that this God makes total demands of us, and that therefore we must choose to bow the knee or to bow up to surrender and join our wills to God's or to resist his will and insist on our own way. This is the choice, God or self. Happiness or misery, heaven or hell, be happy with God's happiness or turn inward to the broken cisterns in your own soul. In the, in, in the, the case of Pam in the great divorce, she was not solid yet because while she thought she loved truly, she didn't love rightly. Why? Because her love should have started with love for God not to get something from him, but to get him, do you see? And it would be only then that she could be both solid and love her son and others correctly. Now, love is at the heart of these two stories that we read a moment ago. And thus, what these stories illustrate is how to live rightly in the world, how to live as solid people who know how to relate correctly to God and to fellow humans. In these stories, we see what's called the greatest 
commandment, right? Love God and what? Love people. And what Luke does is illustrate for us what it looks like to love neighbor in the story of the Good Samaritan, and then what it looks like to love God in the story of Mary and Martha. Do you see? So this is what we'll do, okay? We'll look at verses 25 through 28, and then 38 through 42 this morning. And we'll explore 25 through 37 next week. In other words, we'll consider the command to love God and the illustration of that today. Then the command to love neighbor and the illustration of that next week. Does that make sense? You guys with me? We're jiving. So the scene opens in verse 25 with Jesus being approached by a scribe uh, who is a religious leader. He's somebody who spent his day studying Torah, the law. And Luke tells us what his motives are, doesn't he? He wants to do what to Jesus? He wants to test him. This should hardly surprise us. Luke has not shown religious leaders, right, in positive light thus far. So the scribe comes up to Jesus. He wants to test him. He wants to trap him. And he asks him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Essentially, the scribe wants to know how he can be sure he will, be, he will have a share in the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age, something that the scribes believe. Jesus never wanted to actually fall into any of these religious leaders' traps, right? Ask a question in return. And this is something good teachers do, isn't it? They don't just give you the answer. They ask questions in order for the student to get to the correct answer through their own working it out, right? Jesus is telling the scribe, answer your own question. Jesus asks, what is written in the law? How do you read it? This might have caught the scribe off guard because the religious leaders assumed Jesus was the sort of lawless religious leader who was like upsetting the apple cart and hanging out with sinners, right? They thought he was casting off the law, something that, as an aside, unfortunately, many professing Christians today might wrongly, wrongly think as well. But Jesus is showing the scribe that he's more devoted to the law than even this so-called expert in the law was. Jesus is identifying himself not as a radical who wishes to deny the teaching of the Old Testament, but as someone who wishes to reflect on what God requires. Jesus believed that the law in the Old Testament was the revealed will of God. So he asks, what does the law say about inheriting eternal life? Another way to put the question is, how do you recite it? What does the law say? How do you recite it? When you worship God, he's asking, what do you say in your reciting scripture? What does the scribe say? He answers in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your, and your neighbor as yourself. This answer, if you do some writing in your scripture journal, is a combination of Deuteronomy 6, 5, what's known as the Shema, and Leviticus 19, 18. Okay, he combines these two passages. He tells Jesus what every practicing Jew would recite multiple times a day and what they would have written on their doors and the phylacteries that they had put on their heads and hands. Love God, love neighbor. That's what the scribe says is the answer to how to inherit eternal life. And actually, it's exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 22 and Mark 12, when asked by the religious leaders what the greatest of all commandments is. Now, if you were to ask modern people today, what the way to fullness is, or, or what's the greatest commandment of life? Or what's life's most important principle? You'd, yes, get a lot of different answers, would you not? They'd say things like, be true to yourself. Right? That's the Disney answer. 
be true to yourself, follow your heart, or live in the moment, or do something every day that scares you, or find purpose in your work, or do what you love, or define happiness for yourself, or live with no regrets, or things like this. They're the sort of things people put next to an image of somebody standing on a mountain on Instagram. You know what I'm talking about, right? Um, there are a host of these fortune cookie-esque sayings that people will give to living life to the fullest or, or finding meaning and purpose or life's greatest commands. But what actually is the way of life according to the Bible? Is it any of those things? How can we go from being these ghostly people who fear the light and love darkness to being solid people who love the light and love holiness and truly have fullness of life. The scribe says it here, and Jesus affirms it, doesn't he? Not only in his response in verse 28, but in those other places when he himself is asked what the greatest commandment is, and his answer is the same that the scribe gives. The answer is to love God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's fullness. That's living as you were created to live. That's what all of the law and all of the prophets were getting at. Everything in the Old Testament that has been commanded can fit in one of these two dimensions, love God or love neighbor. John Piper has a great way of putting it. He said, now we can see it whole. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament, the story of redemption, the purpose and acts in history. And what we see is a scroll is hanging by two golden chains, one fashioned to each end of the scroll handles. And Jesus lifts our eyes to heaven, and we see the chains run up and disappear into heaven. Then he takes us up to heaven, and he shows us the end of the chains. They are fastened to the throne of God. One is fastened to the right arm of the throne where the words are inscribed, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind. And the other chain is fastened to the left arm of the throne where the words are inscribed. Guess what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus turns to us and says, the whole scroll the whole law and prophets, the whole history of redemption, all my father's plan and acts hang on these two great sovereign purposes of God, that he be loved by his people and that his people love each other. He says, I believe it would not be too much to say that all of creation, all of redemption, all of history hangs on these two great purposes, that humans love God with all of their heart and that from the overflow of that love, we love each other. So really, Jesus is affirming the law when he says, you have answered correctly, do this and you shall live. Or do this and you will be living. See, the Lord just wants to know how to get to eternal life, right? After death. But Jesus winds it to all of life. Do this and you will truly be living on earth and then in heaven. Further, Jesus is saying that the way to eternal life is the same in the both Old and New Testaments. It is by grace through faith. And what happens when one is saved by grace through faith is they endeavor to respond to such grace with love for God and others. The received love bubbles over to give love to God and man. But see, we've heard this command. How many times have you heard this command? A bajillion, right? That's a number, right? We've heard it so many times. You get what, what happens when we hear these repetitions, right? So many times we might be missing what it's really saying. Loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength means total commitment, total allegiance, total devotion to God. This is a statement of totality of the person. 
But what's left? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's been left out? That's the whole person, isn't it? Further, note the word all is said four times. Did you see that? All of your heart. All of your soul. All of your strength. All of your mind. Not some, not a quarter, not a half, not even 99.9%. All. But Jesus won't let this be left in the abstract, will he? Jesus isn't going to leave us off the hook by relegating love for God in the realm of mere feeling. He says, do this and you will be living. Do this and live. Love acts or it isn't love. Love gives allegiance or it isn't love. Love is total or isn't love. Jesus is after the entire person. Jesus is calling for the whole of a person to respond to where God rules all of life. Where all of life is lived with a motive of love for God, where all of life is brought under Christ's total lordship. Jesus will allow for no compartmentalization of one's life. Love for God is to motivate how one lives in every aspect. Jesus' rule over our lives, in other words, cannot be such that he rules over one part of our lives and not another part. We can't say, I will love God with this, but not that. That Jesus can rule over this, but not that, and hope to remain, to retain some kind of control over aspects that we refuse to hand over to Christ's rule. Such things cannot live in harmony with Christ's call to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because that's everything. That, that's the whole person. That's all there is. You know, the illustration I like to use, you know I've used it before, but uh, you have guests over to your house, you know? And you sort of have that one room that's off limits. You have that room that's off limits, right? Maybe you have someone coming over, short notice. You just kind of just toss things in there. It's so full. It's like if you open it, it's like cartoonish falling things, right? It's off limits, right? You, you lock it, <laughs> and guests come over. You give them the tour, and they're like, hey, what's that room that, with the door closed? And you're like, why don't you not worry about that, all right? Don't you worry about that room. But even the most hospitable host, when they have guests over, don't tell them, help yourself to literally anything in the house. Right? Feel free to explore and open doors and drawers and cap. Do you do that? You don't do that. Hey, just, just be generally nosy if you want. Right? No, you have places that are off limits. You sort of confine everyone in the living room or some other common area. You don't give them full access to everything as if they live there too. Now, often we imagine that Jesus is sort of a house guest. We'll let him know which parts he's allowed to explore and rule. We might say, you can you you rule over my religious life, but not my work. Not my money, not my hobbies, not my relationships, not my possessions, not my parenting, not my time management. To which Jesus says, that's not how it works. Your whole life is your religious life. And it must be ruled by me or not at all. This includes every room, as it were. Work, money, family, relationships, hobbies, possessions, parenting, and time management. All must come under my rule, is what Jesus says. And all must be pursued with this in mind. Love God and love neighbor. Do you see? See, the greatest commandment is challenging because it's revealing. It's not challenging because it's difficult. For if we see love for God and love for neighbor as anything but a delight, we're missing the heart of it. It's difficult, yes, but it ought to be a joy and more and more as we grow, says Danny Aiken. Our response to these two commandments exposes our hearts. 
lays bare our souls and reveals what matters most to us. What do you cherish? Like the picture Lewis gives in The Great Divorce, what God is after is simply our becoming whole and solid people. We were made to love God with all of our faculties because it is a return of his loving us first. His love, in other words, is not a coerced love. He's not saying, love me or else. He's saying, I love you, I made you, I pursued you, and to love me is to live as you were created, to live before sin and came and reoriented and disoriented and reordered your loves. See, Pam's problem in the introduction wasn't that she loved her son. That's not the problem. It's that she didn't love God first. And so her love for her son was a ravenous and possessive love. Only when she loved God for God could she love her son rightly. And the same is true for you and me. If we love anyone more than God, whether it be spouse or child or even ourselves, we won't be loving that person the way they ought to be loved because they will bear the weight of divinity. And our love will crush them. Or we will be ruined when they fail us or don't live up to our expectations that we have for them. So we will think we're loving them, but really we're using them. And Jesus is calling for us to love him with total allegiance, first and foremost, so that we can be whole. And so that we can love others without either crushing them or them crushing us. See, one of our temptations will be to compartmentalize our lives to where we only love God with parts of ourselves. Another temptation will be to love God, but give him second place in the order of our loves. When the lawyer tries to justify himself in verse 29, what we'll look at next week, he asks, who is my neighbor? He's trying to put limits, yes? There's borders on this neighbor love. He's asking, how far do I have to go with this thing? And we can put the question with the same, we can put that same question with the first commandment and say, how far do I have to go with this love of God thing? Is it okay if I love him second or third? Or can I have my love with him be tied for first with my love for my spouse or myself or my kids? Can I love him with extra bit of love that I have left over? Won't he be happy with the scraps of love I toss his way? I'm reminded the saddest thing I saw this weekend was a video that Skip Bayless posted on Twitter. Do you guys know who Skip Bayless is? Raise your hand if you know who this dude is. Yeah? That's about what I thought. For the unfamiliar, Skip Bayless, he's a sports commentator. He has a show with Shannon Sharp on FS1 or something. Um, if you know him, you know he's really a run-of-the-mill sport. Is he not run-of-the-mill sports talking head? Just, you know, says things to get attention. But anyway, he posted a video. It was like a minute and a half. And in it, he talks about his relationship with his wife. Did you see this? No? Uh, he says that he told her on the first date that if their relationship was to continue, that she has to realize she will always come second to his career. He told her that if she ever said, you have to stop what you're doing and give me more attention and devotion, he would say, I'm sorry, you'll have to go on without me. Then he said this, I love my wife more than I can express. I love having her in my life, but only if she doesn't threaten what I live for. What kind of love is that? He said, she commented <laughs> that she has, after all these years of marriage, become 1A 
in order of his loves, but she isn't his first love, his career is. If she threatens his career, she's gone. That's not love, is it? What kind of love is that? But see, we could be tempted to do the same thing with our love for God. We could love God, but as a means to an end. We could love him, but second to our career, or our significant other, or our kids, or even our reputation or our possessions. We could look at Jesus' costly call of discipleship that we've seen in this gospel, like take up a cross or let the dead bury their dead and think, I love you, God, but don't ask too much of me. Stay out of this area. Don't ask me to give up this or that. Maybe tempted to say, I love God, yes, but I love this or that other thing just as much. Or I love God as my 1A to my other more dominant love. This can't be so. Don't you see that this simply will not do? See, I, I don't love my wife best when I love her first. You realize that? I don't love my kids best when I love them first. I love them best when I love God first. And then love them as an outflow of the love that I find loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who loved me first and affected my salvation with their redeeming, giving, sacrificial love, which enables me to love like that too. Don't you see? What Jesus calls for in his own stating of these commandments and his affirmation of the Lord's answer is total commitment, a love that isn't mere feelings, but is expressed in all of life. We love him because he first loved us. And the way he first loved us was loving us when we were at our most unlovely. And yet he pursued and he sacrificed. He gave of himself to get to us. And so he says, love me in return. Not because he needs love. He doesn't need anything. But because it will make us whole. It is for our good to love him like this. It'll make us whole. It will cause us to pursue our created design. It's for our good that we love God this way, don't you see? And this love is a love for who God is in himself. It's loving him for him. He's the prize. He's the treasure. He's the motivation of life. And he is worthy of my loving him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Even as imperfectly as I pursue that, I still must pursue. Michael Reeves says this, but how can we without hypocrisy, come to embrace Christ as our most dearly cherished treasure. Only when we sense his unfathomable love for us, how kind and merciful he is, he is and has been, how much he has suffered for our forgiveness, how he's truly better than all the other things we run after. We love him because he first loved us. In other words, all my efforts could not achieve the love of Christ achieves. It wins me to love God and love others with sincerity, freedom, and spontaneity. I begin to enjoy holiness and hate sin because I enjoy him and hate what stands against him and all his goodness, truth, and beauty. Jesus tells the lawyer, do this and live. This is a promise and a command. Do this. Don't just feel love for God. Act on that love. Again, this isn't some kind of works righteousness. This is, oh, you know, all this is, all this is faith. But love for God with heart, soul, mind, and strength is just another way of saying faith. And true faith flows out to one's deeds because one cannot experience the grace of God and remain the same. Anyone who would call loving God through the Holy Spirit because of the work of Jesus works righteousness shows their lack of understanding of grace, works, and righteousness. Because when Jesus saves us, he imputes his righteousness to our bankrupt account. He turns us into new people. Don't you see? Who pursue what he enables us to pursue. 
which is love for him for his own sake, which makes us a different kind of people who do different kinds of things. So what's an example of this loving God? We get that example in verses 38 through 42. This story is likely takes place quite a bit later on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem, but Luke places it here to illustrate for us love to God, as the parable of the Good Samaritan illustrates love for neighbor. So what's going on here? You see what it says. She has been invited into Martha's house, and her sister uh, Mary is there as well, and Martha is frantically working to serve food and drinks and clean and get everything right. Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, which is a posture, you probably know this, of a disciple. Mary sits at Jesus' feet. She's listening to his teachings, and this bugs Martha. Why is Martha slaving away in her hospitality while Mary is just sitting there doing nothing? Does this not sound like siblings? So Mar- Martha complains to Jesus. She says, Lord, you don't, do you, don't you care? Don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? And then she don't tell Jesus what to do, right? She says, tell her, <laughs> tell her to help me. And what does Jesus do? It's remarkable. Jesus says, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing's necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. What's going on here? Isn't service good? Isn't it good that Martha is being hospitable to Jesus? Isn't it a good thing to be serving at one's own expense? Yes. And this scene isn't intended to teach us that service is bad. What this scene is teaching us is that service is not a replacement for worship. Says Thomas Schreiner, serving is good and necessary, but Martha lost the truth that all service must flow out of one's relationship with the Lord. That all service must be rooted in the joy of knowing God as one's treasure and pleasure. There are clues, aren't there, with what is wrong with Martha's service and priorities. Luke tells us in verse 40, she is what? Distracted. She's distracted with much serving. What does Jesus say in verse 41? You are anxious. You are troubled with many things. Martha's distracted. She's anxious. She's troubled. She's being pulled in all these different directions, which are keeping her from the best thing. So further, her activity has influenced and skewed her perspective. That perhaps she even tried to listen to Jesus. Maybe she tried to listen to Jesus while he was teaching, but she couldn't because of her work. In other words, she's too busy for Jesus, even though she's doing a good thing. Now notice that Jesus' response is a tender one, isn't it? He says, Martha, Martha, this is a sign of emotion and familiarity and care. And he doesn't condemn her, does he? But he invites her with gentleness and firmness to consider that there's a better way. See, it's Mary who chose, verse 22, the, verse 42, the good portion, which is a figurative reference to the right meal, which is the word of God and the gospel and worshiping Christ and listening to his teachings and drawing near to him. Mary has chosen the thing that will last the longest. Jesus' teaching and kingdom, which will not be taken from her. Mary is loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength by attending to the worship of him. Do you see? Martha is pulled and anxious and frantic to the point that she isn't worshiping Christ and drawing close to him or taking, taking in his word. Service is appropriate, listen, until it distracts from worship. Dale Ralph Davis said in his commentary, don't get Martha wrong. She didn't think Mary should never listen to Jesus' teaching. She didn't think Jesus should refrain from teaching in her home. She simply believes there are times when listening to the words of Jesus should take second place to the pressing needs of the moment. 
or another commentator put it this way. Martha also wanted to hear Jesus, but the tyranny of the urgent prevented her from doing this. Jesus' response to her is, in essence, a call for Martha to rest in him. It's a declaration that Jesus would rather have Martha than her distracted service. There will be a time for her to serve after she sits and worships and learns at Jesus' feet, because then her service will be energized and propelled by love for Jesus' person, and it won't be distracted, hurried, anxious, and troubled. See, love for God with all heart, soul, strength, and mind is just another way, as we said, for faith, and faith in the gospel of Jesus rightly received reorders and reprioritizes life. Mary, even though she doesn't say a single word, does she? Not a word. Teaches us, doesn't she? She's an example for us because she has prioritized the gospel and made it primary to which all other things, even hospitality, become relative. And here's the thing we need to see in this story. Not just that it illustrates love for God, but that it teaches us that even good things can become an excuse to neglect loving and worshiping God. I'm going to say that again. The story teaches us that even good things can become an excuse to neglect loving and worshiping God. It reminds us that even good things in life, things that we can easily justify in our hearts and minds and before people and even before God, can tear us away from the best thing. Worship of God and sitting at Jesus' feet. Charles Spurgeon said, The more objects you set your heart upon, the more thorns there are to tear your peace of mind to shreds. See, some of you are living distracted lives. Some of you are anxious and troubled. Some of you are stretched too thin. Some of you have neglected prayer and scripture reading because you're too busy. Some of you have relegated coming to Sunday gatherings to worship and focus on Christ as a sort of if I have time or if I could fit it in or if I don't have anything else going on. Some of you could justify the things that pull you away from worshiping Christ and learning from his word because you have really good reasons why you need to work or vacation or give yourself to kids' activities or your hobbies or whatever it might be. Good things, important things, but they've become God things. And you know it. You know why you know it? Because you're distracted and you're anxious. I'm, rem- I'm reminded of, uh, mentioned C.S. Lewis at the beginning there. I'm reminded of another book by him that you probably are familiar with, Screwtape Letters. In the first letter, uh, the fictional demon Screwtape tells his apprentice demon Wormwood of a time, Wormwood, of a time he almost lost the person he was assigned to. He said, I almost lost this guy who was an ardent atheist. He said almost 20 years ago, Almost 20 years of work with him to keep him away from God was all almost undone because the man picked up the word and began to read. This is what Screwtape said. He said, if I had lost my head and begun to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about time he had some lunch. To this, says Screwtape, God suggested to the man that his reading was more important than lunch. But Screwtape countered this by telling the man that he could simply put aside the word, go eat lunch, and come back to it, and it worked. The man put aside the reading, he went to lunch, and he did not, in fact, come back to the word. 
I think that's a fitting picture because it's a microcosm of what we can tend to do on a larger scale. Lunch is reasonable enough, isn't it? How much more reasonable is our work? We need jobs, don't we? We gotta live. We gotta pay bills. If my job pulls me away from scripture intake or regular Sunday gatherings for worship with God's people, God understands, doesn't he? So what if my job is taxing on me and making me anxious and distracting me from loving God with heart, soul, and mind and strength? Gotta work, don't I? You see? Isn't work a good thing? Yes? So is lunch, right? Gotta eat. You see the insidiousness of this? Jesus doesn't condemn work any more than he condemns Martha's serving. In fact, he encourages work. Work is a good thing, but when it becomes a distraction from prioritizing worship of Christ, is it a good thing anymore? Why is it? Let me ask. Can I ask this? This is a safe space, right? Why is it that when we get busy, the first thing to go is time with the Lord? Have you noticed that? If life is busy, then we could say, well, I could just put aside daily reading of Scripture and prayer, and I'll pick it back up when the busy season is over. And note that a lot of times we're busy because of things we've voluntarily taken on. And why do we take them on? Well, we've got good reasons for them. <laughs> or they lead, we think, to good ends. But why, when, we, when these busy times come that make us anxious and distracted, do we not cut out Netflix or doom scrolling through social media? Why don't we cut out extracurriculars that stretch our families thin? Why don't we cut out overtime at work? Why do we cut out sitting at Jesus' feet and gathering together like we're doing now for worship? Why, when we get distracted and pulled in all kinds of other directions, do we sacrifice worship on the altar of our life goals? So I've been a pastor long enough. We're all running to people, as you probably do. I haven't seen in a while. And I'll say, we missed you. Been seeing you on Sundays. And most of the time, the answer goes like this. Yeah, it's just a busy time. I have a lot going on. We'll be back when things slow down. You see what's happened? What's been cut out in the busyness? Sitting under the word and receiving soul refreshment with God's people. Why is that what goes? Is that posture loving God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or has something supplanted that love? Now again, remember that Jesus doesn't condemn Martha's serving. It's good what she's doing. That's what makes this tricky, isn't it? It is in her focus on these other good things that she's forgetting the most important person. And the circumstances are overwhelming her. Friend, what, what might you be doing that's keeping you from more of Jesus? What might be keeping you right now in your life, from scripture intake and prayer and worship, that might be a good thing. It probably is a good thing. But let me ask, is it the best? Will it last? What is the good portion? What's the good portion that can't be taken away? What is worship, like we're doing now, and taking in the word, like we're doing now, do. It's supposed to quiet and still a disturbed and burdened and anxious heart. It's a good portion that can't be taken away because worship is what we'll be doing for eternity. When we gather, you know this, we're practicing for eternity. 
And it is meant to put our anxieties and distractions into perspective by asking what will last. It reminds us that we will live forever in a kingdom without end and only what is done for Christ will last. Friend, the worries of life should never prevent us from consuming God's word. No disciple should ever be too busy to sit at Jesus' feet. But don't you see that Jesus is sitting at Jesus' feet, worshiping him, learning more of him, growing in his likeness? These are supposed to be delights. We shouldn't feel like prioritizing worship is duty. It should be a delight, a desire of our souls to worship our triune God. There's a reason why Jesus commands love for God with one's whole self. It's a thrill. It's an honor to know Christ and be able to grow in knowledge of him. True joy is found in Jesus, and lower joys can very well be joys. But they can rob us of the joy we were designed to experience in him alone. John Bloom says it like this. He says, it is pure gospel to us that God's greatest commandment does not command our performance, but our affection. Isn't that wonderful? God is most concerned that we experience the joy of love, not that we merely jump through behavioral hoops. The glorious secret of Christian obedience, that gracious divine conspiracy, is that the more we experience this joy of being loved by God and loving him in return, the less his behavioral commandments feel anything like hoops for us. Rather, they become our joyful means of expressing our love for God as he mercifully shepherds us through the narrow gate. Luke's message to all disciples who read the story is this. Sit at Jesus' feet and devour his teaching since there is no more important meal. Friend, are you anxious? Are you distracted by the cares of life? Are you busy and hurried with things you've chosen to take on? Are you being pulled in all kinds of different directions? Is your life so full of things, even good things, that you have neglected the best things? Are you devoting yourself to things that moth and rust will destroy or that thieves can break in and steal or things that will not last beyond this life and what you've sacrificed in order to chase those things is intentional sitting at Jesus' feet and this has caused you to not love him with heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you dwell once more on who Jesus is and what he's done to get to you? Would you perceive his beauty and let it strike your heart how he has loved you from eternity and that he loves you because of the love found within himself? The only thing that makes sense in light of seeing that kind of love towards the unlovely is a love back out of sheer delight and astonishment that we could be loved and sought and bought this way. And what is sitting at Jesus' feet if not delighting in his person? which in turn helps us to be solid people who can love others of an outflow of our love and devotion to God. We look at this command to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and it seems daunting. Who could do this? Jesus did it. And he did it perfectly. And he did it to enable you by his power to pursue it so that you could see the love of God and be overwhelmed by his love. Don't you, do you see the full circle here? The more you sit at Jesus' feet and dwell on his love and read his word and worship him with the church, the more you will see who he is and what he's done, and the only fitting response will be to love him with heart and soul and mind and strength, and more and more until you're doing it into eternity. 
said Puritan John Flavel, oh, if only you knew Christ's worth and excellency, what he is in himself, what he's done for you and deserved from you, you would need no argument of mine to persuade you to love him. Choose the good portion, friend. Do this and you'll be living.